Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you go to the book of Romans and Romans chapter 16? Um, we're at verse 25, which there's only 27 verses, so, you know, we're coming into the last three here. And we're only going to get through verse 25 today. I, I had mentioned last week that we probably wouldn't finish it, and I think you're going to see why. Uh, interestingly, this last week, I went back to June of 2016 in our library, and I looked at the video from that particular weekend when we launched the Roman study. And I said at that time, I don't know, maybe we'll be in this study three years. We'll probably be in it as long as it takes to get into the new building. Well, I'm gonna play that clip next weekend because <laughs> it's very likely that this could turn into two more weeks yet. Um, we'll see, and you'll see what I'm talking about in just a moment. I, I've found in looking at these last three verses that the reason we exist as a church is found right here in the final three verses of Romans chapter 16. If these aspects were not true, we'd have no reason to be here this morning. You may as well have left with the rest of Lansing and gone to Northern Michigan this weekend, right? Uh, we could be out playing golf, you could be doing lots of things, you wouldn't have to give up an hour, hour and a half of your weekend to be here if these things were not true. Individually and corporately, we would have no hope, so there would be no reason for new hope. With that thought in mind, I'm going to ask that God would illuminate our minds. Would you step with me into prayer before we look at this verse? Join me there. Father, I come before you and I lift up every person in this auditorium before you, every person watching online right now. Those who will watch later this week because of responsibilities at work, God, use this to illuminate our understanding. Take us to that place where we understand more clearly not only your call upon us, but the way that you strengthen us. The way that you put wind in our sails, the way that you cause our lungs to fill with the ability to praise you. God, I pray that you would use your word that way, which you promise is alive and active, so sharpen our thinking now. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Three years ago, June 2016, this is the way that we started. It's 386 AD. Aurelius Augustine finds himself in Milan, Italy. He's a professor. He works at the University of Milan. He's an individual who's very well known for his intellect. Yeah, he tends to tip the bottle a lot. And on the weekends, he tries to drown his pain and his sorrow through drink, very strong drink, to the degree that he earns a reputation in Milan. Intelligent guy, but doesn't have his personal life together. And he's frustrated. He can't make sense of things in the world. He doesn't know how to interpret what's going on because he looks at philosophy through the lens of the world. A friend hands him the book of Romans and says to Augustine, Aurelius, you need to spend time with this digesting and processing what this book says. It will help you make sense. Augustine read Romans and gave his life to Jesus Christ and went on to become one of the greatest authors and one of the greatest professors Christendom has ever known. Fast forward to 1517 AD. A young man finds himself in Rome. He's frustrated. He's grown up within the Catholic Church, and he's heard that people can earn their way to God. 
that they can buy indulgences to earn God's favor. And Martin Luther wanders the streets of Rome watching individuals do that very thing, turning over their last pennies to the Roman Catholic Church in order to buy God's favor. And he believes there's got to be more than this. So he's told by a friend to turn to the book of Romans. And as he reads the things you're going to read this morning, he comes to a place of revelation. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. Martin Luther turns everything on a dime. Fast forward again to 1738. John Wesley is a young man. He lives in London, England. He hears about the new world, which is not yet a nation. He sets sail for what we know today as the United States of America. He lands on the shores of South Carolina. He's determined to go to the Native American population and bring the name of Jesus to them because he hears they're a heathen people. He has zero response. He leaves the New World, jumps on a ship, completely dejected and rejected, and decides to go back to London. Approaching the shores of England, his ship comes under a storm. The main mast of the ship snaps off, and John Wesley finds himself embracing, hugging, clinging to the mast of the ship. But he looks around the ship, and he sees other individuals who are gathered together in prayer, praying that God would spare their life. And one of them turns to John and says to him, John, do you not have peace with God? Are you consumed with fear? And John begins to calculate whether or not Jesus is real to him. He lands on the shores of England. They limp back into a port, and a friend meets him at a dock, and he tells him what had happened to him. And that friend says to him, John, this weekend you need to go to the particular church that he named. He said there's a man there who's teaching on Martin Luther's interpretation of the book of Romans. You need to study Romans, John. John Wesley's world is revolutionized as he dives into the book of Romans. You have a non-believer who's a professor, an individual who's thinking he can earn salvation, and another individual whose faith is completely empty, and all three of them turn Western world Christianity on its head. What could they have read and understood that changed their life trajectory? That was June 2016. They obviously read the very things that you've studied for the last three years. Things like you'll see on the screen right now. Look with me at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or what about this? What did this do to Martin Luther? Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or this one, Romans 10.13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And don't you love Romans 8.1? I'm thinking John Wesley and Augustine and Martin Luther, when they read this, they said the same thing that you're about to say. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the Romans road. It's the most basic of the most basic. 
Yet it's the most theologically profound of the most theologically profound. Every one of those sentences contains so much depth and so much richness. How could you not spend years studying each one of those? Because what you see, once again, is that belief results in salvation, and salvation means justification, and justification means no condemnation because you're saved by grace through faith. So if you personally understand those things, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you personally get that regarding God's actions, obviously Augustine came to this place where he understood it made sense to him. If you understand God's actions in the world and what he's up to, what do you do with that kind of information? You can't keep it to yourself. Well, Paul, he's been drenched in the Old Testament from childhood. He's personally had conversations with Peter, James, and John, and he met the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, face to face. So the culmination of all the wisdom and all the life experience is poured into one book that's in your lap this morning, the book of Romans. Paul wrote it all down because he was inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And because it contains so much richness, it drove us to spend three years on this journey together. But how do you close something like that? Do you just say, the end? Doesn't seem fitting, does it? Or do you give it a closing that's worthy of the magnificence of the primary message? that you are saved by grace through faith. But far greater than even that, and I know you're thinking right now, how could anything be greater than that, that I'm saved by grace through faith? Well, here's what's greater than that. Even greater than that, a closing that reflects the majesty of the one whom Romans was written about, a doxology to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the last three verses are. It's about praising Jesus So if you've got your Bible open right now and you're looking at it, you're going to begin seeing this doxology. And if you grew up in church, you know what a doxology is. If you didn't grow up in church, you're about to learn. You're about to understand exactly why this word was even put together. Doxa, that particular word, you see it in your notes right now, that comes from the word glory, what we know as the word glory today. And ology is part of the word logos, which is the word word. So you've got doxaology a word about glory, a word ascribing glory. So if you put doxology together, it's words ascribing glory to the one who's worthy of it. And doxologies are found throughout Scripture. I bet you haven't even noticed some of them before. You're probably thinking of the book of Psalms. And yep, it's, it's littered with it. But I want you to think of the New Testament. Think even Christmas time. At the birth of Jesus, Luke chapter 1, a multitude of the heavenly host gathered together, and what are they doing? Praising God, and what do they say? Glory to God in the highest. Doxology, or what about Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer? The disciples come to Jesus, and they say, would you teach us how to pray? Like John's disciples know how to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But how does he end it? Think of the ending of the Lord's prayer. 
And you begin seeing the doxology for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Or something that you've read as we work through Romans. Look with me on the screen. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Doxology. See, if you look at it, Hebrews, Revelation, Ephesians, they're littered with these doxas. In Paul's doxa, he's got these three verses to work with, and he visits the major theme of the book of Romans. And we're only going to hit one this morning. God is described in the opening sentence as the one who is able to establish you. That's remarkable because of all the other things that Paul could have written about. He begins centering on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and begins talking about how that strengthens you. So when you hear a doxology, know what's going on here. It's a biblical way of saying that everything that exists, everything that is, is here for the glory of God. I hope you're good with that because that's what you're about to see this morning. So Paul begins his doxology this way. Now to him... Now to him what, Paul? Now to him who is able. And he begins ascribing glory to God. And he inserts phrase after phrase after phrase about the truth of God. And he visits the gospel while he does it. Go with me on the screen. Look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Now, what's really obvious when you're reading that is that of all the things he could have said about God, what he does say here of all the many great acts of God and all the things you can read about God in the Bible, he chooses to highlight one thing. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Now, that's an interesting doxology. Because he's not just talking about God, he weaves you into it. And I'm asking you this morning, where do you get your strength from? When things are going traumatically in your life, when you're going through hard times, what do you need to be reminded of? Paul's going for this point for a reason. Of all the things he could have said at the end of the greatest letter ever written, he makes a doxology to God, but he includes you in there. Now that's obvious. Here's what's less obvious. When you think of the kings of this world and you think of the dictators in ancient times past and even the few dictators who still exist in this world today, how do those dictators and how do those kings maintain their power? Well, they keep their power on the backs of broken people. You only have to think of North Korea. Or you can go back in ancient times and think of some of those dictators. Those individuals kept the people within their kingdom uneducated, broken, and poor, and they built their empires upon the backs of individuals like that. Why? Because educated people are a threat to dictators. People who have money are a threat to kings. And so they would keep them in subjection. A contrast this with what God does. He displays his glory by making you stronger. God does not secure his strength by keeping you weak. 
He's magnified when you grow strong in your faith and in your hope. He's totally revolutionary compared to the kings of the world that we know. So God makes you stronger in the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul's going for here because of why he wrote the book of Romans. So his very first praise, his first doxa, is that God establishes us. And he says God is able to do that. If you believe God is able this morning, say amen. Amen. God is able. He's more than able, isn't he, church? He's more than able to do what? To strengthen you. He's more than able to establish you. He has abundant power to do that. To establish who? To establish those who trust in him. So your one and only Greek word in your notes this morning, this is going to go pretty fast for you, is the word you're going to see go up on the screen, the word sterizo. And that particular word is talking about being so resolute in a certain direction, you can't be moved. So God is able to do that, to set you fast. You notice the very last word in the definition, the word strengthen. It means to make you really, really firm In other words, certain. So he's talking about mental certainty here. Talking about mental capacity. So in context, it's referring to being mentally convinced and rooted in the truth of the gospel. I just want you to do a series of contrasts with me for a moment. Contrast what we're about to look at with the person whom you might know that's not yet a believer in Jesus. Maybe they have no interest in church in their life whatsoever. Maybe they're afraid if they go in the doors of a church, they'd burst into flames. They they just think they wouldn't be accepted. Think of that person. These are true of a non-believer. Look with me on the screen. You see them in your notes also. A non-believer has no certainty about God. A non-believer has no certainty about God's word. Therefore, if they've got no certainty about God's word, they have no certainty about the way of salvation. And because they have no certainty about the way of salvation, a non-believer has no certainty of their own eternal destiny. That's really sad because this is the reason Jesus came. So Paul's writing that believers are established by truth. And the reason he wrote the book of Romans is to explain God's plan of salvation to you, to Christians, to explain it to you. Why? So that you would be firmly established so that you would be rooted. Why? So you would share it with others. So Paul writes this, that God is able to establish you in this truth. And watch what God does for you. God establishes your mind in truth, and he makes you firm in him. So watch the contrast here. Here's what's true of you if you're a believer in Jesus this morning. A believer has certainty about God. Do you have certainty about God this morning? If you do, say amen. Amen. Then the next part is true about you. Then you have certainty about God's word. And therefore, a believer has certainty about the way of salvation. And praise God for this. You're about to celebrate this in communion in just a moment. A believer then has certainty about their own eternal destiny. Only a believer in Jesus Christ, a person saved by the gospel of Jesus, can say those things and say they're true. I'm convinced of it. This is what was written in Scripture. Look with me on the screen at 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What's that day? That day when you cross over eternity's shoreline, when you step into eternity. Until that day, he's got you. That's why the authors of Scripture said, I'm convinced of this. 
So we come into the last part of Paul's statement here and we ask ourselves, why does he say it's my gospel? Like he's making it personal, like it's his. You see those two words on the screen? Well, he's not speaking about his own personal view on Jesus. His gospel is the same as Peter's and it's the same as John's and it's the same gospel that you believe this morning. He's not talking about something different here, no different than what you know as the true gospel. And just at the risk that there might be somebody here that doesn't know what I'm talking about, the gospel is this, that we all are sinners. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that in eternity past, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit decided that God the Son would empty himself of all of his attributes and become one of us and live among us perfectly, sinlessly, but at the hands of godless men he would be nailed to a cross for the sins of the world. So beaten, tortured, put to death, and buried. But praise God, that was Friday, because Sunday's coming. So Paul says, my gospel is this. And by saying that, he means it was revealed to me, just like it's been revealed to you, just like millions of people around this planet throughout history have understood. This same Jesus rose again on the third day, and he's coming back again one day in power and glory. That is what Paul's talking about when he says, it's mine. I own it. My gospel, I understand it, I've heard it, I believe it, and I received it from Jesus myself. See, he can go one step further than you because historically, he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Jesus. So Paul can say things like this, Galatians 1.11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ directly from the King of Kings. Only the apostles can say that. Now just mentally rehearse with me what you've seen so far as we wrap this up. Now to him who is able because he's strong to establish you. He roots you and grounds you. Paul says to that one, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. What is that, verse 25? What's he talking about? Now remember, he's still in the first part of his doxa. Now do you see why we couldn't finish it this weekend? He's only halfway through the first sentence, and we've already burned 20 minutes here. And we've got communion yet. And I hit Tuesday, and I'm thinking, no way. Not after three years. We're going to spend some time with this one. What's he talking about, the preaching of Jesus? Well, that's another term for the gospel. It's like saying the proclamation. It's like when, when you talk to your neighbor or your social worker uh, or your social circle or, or your coworker, maybe somebody in your neighborhood about Jesus. It's like saying, I, I know who this one is, but it goes even beyond that. It's not just the talking about Jesus. It's the proclamation. See, you should not understand this as the preaching that was done by Jesus when he was on the Mount of Olives or when he did the Sermon on the Mount or when he did the Beatitudes. That's not what Paul's referring to here. The preaching of Jesus is when Jesus is the central message. That's what he's talking about here. That's the gospel that establishes you. That's the gospel that strengthens you. The gospel that proclaims Jesus. 
New Hope, I, I know that you this morning agree with me, and if, if the voices behind the cameras could shout out who are watching online, they'd say the same thing right now, that we would say, may New Hope always keep Jesus as the central message. Ten years from now, when we've grown from 1,200 to multiple thousands of people, may the word of God and the centrality of Jesus never be diminished here or at the new building. May he always be the center of what New Hope is identified by. And Paul sums it up most clearly by saying, that's my supreme life commitment. It's the theme of Romans. It's the theme of all of Scripture to point to Jesus, the gospel that proclaims Jesus. So Paul says things like this, 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified, or this one, 2 Corinthians 4.5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. See, that's what strengthens you, that he left eternity, that he came for you, that he died for your sins, and that he rose and he's coming back again in glory one day. That strengthens you. It strengthens you every time you remind yourself of that. That's why communion is so important. That's why Jesus wanted you to remember, because the gospel that establishes us proclaims Jesus as Christ, as the risen Lord. So think about how the gospel is in the midst of the communion story that you're about to experience. Think about how Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 11. For I receive from the Lord that which I deliver unto you, that in the night that Jesus was betrayed, what's he doing? He's beginning to tell the story of the gospel. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to see this and hear this for yourself. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's the gospel, but that's only one half of it. That's Jesus telling you that he's going to die for you that they're going to shed my blood. My body's going to be broken for you. That's half of the gospel. Here's the other half. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's the one half. Here's the other half. Until he comes. So to come again must mean that he rose again, right? So that's the gospel. He died. He came for you. And he's coming back again. So when you lift this cup and when you lift the bread right now, you're going to witness to the person on your left and on your right, this is me. I'm as convinced as Paul. I believe this. I know this to be true. So that's why you get such a strong warning in Scripture. Scripture says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you're new here at New Hope, our tradition is this. You can remain in your seat and examine yourself until you're ready to come up to one of the tables. There'll be individuals at the front and in the back, up in the balcony. And they're there to remind you what you're doing. They may say something as simple as the body and the blood, but it reminds you of what Jesus just said to remember. When you feel ready and you've examined yourself and taken this very seriously between you and the Father, 
Come up to one of the tables, pick up the elements, take it back to your seat, and I'll talk you through the rest. But right now, this time is for you to talk to your father. If you're one of those whom he has washed white as snow, would you stand with me this morning? You hold in your hands the elements that Jesus said would represent his body that was broken for you and his blood that was shed for you. So he said, when you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of him. In the same meal, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. Father, I thank you for the witness that's taken place in this auditorium this weekend. Where person after person after person has claimed that you have washed them and prepared them for eternity. Regardless of whether or not we feel cleansed, we are cleansed because you declared it. We thank you for the reality of that. So we praise you. We praise you for what you have revealed to be truth, that we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we praise now. And all God's people said, amen.